<laughs> you might have been walking through Tompkins Square Park or Central Park or somewhere, and you would have heard that same melody and the same combination of instruments. Um, but you would have seen an elder gentleman leading the kirtan, and that would have been His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, who came to New York in 1965 in order to bring the chanting of the Krishna mantra and the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita from India to the Western world. And uh, I met Prabhupada a few years later. I met him in 1970. It was the first time we met. So he had the Krishna movement was already five years old. Uh, but there still weren't that many people involved with Krishna yoga, bhakti yoga in those days. So you kind of knew everybody on a first name basis. Well, that's all we had, I guess, was first name. But there wasn't that big a community. Now, the culture of devotion, of bhakti, has uh, spread quite far, and it encompasses pretty much any important area of human endeavor, whether it's, um, I was just reading an article this morning about uh, Jane Goodall describing, this was in the New York Times, she described the transition from a um, paleo paleontologist studying chimpanzees in the wild, which is kind of a somewhat passive role, to becoming a social activist. And it was after she'd uh, published some books and felt that she had earned a voice in what had been a rather male-dominant field of study. And specifically when it came to uh, experiments that are performed on chimpanzees. The article was about a piece of legislation that was finally passed that would prohibit laboratories from conducting experiments, not completely, but in large measure, on chimpanzees. And the issue was, now where do we house the chimpanzees that have either been captured or raised for experimental purposes? And uh, Jane Goodall was a, an important part of the article. The uh, transition she described, I had the great pleasure of, of spending some time with her, and I remember talking with her. Uh, it was an interview for the United Nations Peace Summit back in 2000. And she spoke about the experience of looking at a chimpanzee in the eyes and seeing consciousness at work here. She was describing chimpanzees not as animals, not as something subhuman or less than human, but as living beings, as spiritual as we. And she was quite eloquent about it. She said, and if you were to recognize the presence of a soul in that body, and if you were to honor that being as being as divine a spark of God as yourself, would that not acknowledgement, would that acknowledgement not then perpetuate and could that not then spark a kind of chain reaction 
where that chimpanzee could bring that opening of the possibility of exchange with other species back to his or her community. And she was describing this absolutely extraordinary potential that starts from acknowledging the divinity of life in all of its many forms. And what struck me about that, she, she didn't particularly speak of the Bhagavad Gita, but what's interesting about Jane Goodall is that she's probably the most spiritual person I've ever met. <laughs> and she doesn't represent a particular tradition or background. She talked about the forest as a cathedral. <laughs> where you can be in the world and be connected with Krishna, with God, through devotion. So, that was very inspiring. Anyway, how are you all doing? Nice to see you back here. Welcome. So glad you could join us this evening. All right. Would you introduce yourself to the group? I don't think everyone knows that you're the engine there in the cafe. <laughs> wow, thank you. Very honored. Nice to see you. Thanks for being with us. Uh, let's just go around the room quickly. Say your name. The cookie lady, yes. Share with cookies. And your name is? My name is Lauren. Hi. You were here last week, weren't you? Good to see you again. Thank you. Welcome. Have you been to our little gatherings before? No, I haven't. It's your first time here? Yes. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I was just finished. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Right. <laughs> and what's your name? Courtney. Courtney. Hi. Have you been here before? I came on the Oh, well, thank you. Welcome. She also just finished. Gee, this is, boy, it's a graduation party here today. Okay. Yeah. Sure. And you also uh, got your certification, did you? Yeah, wow, this is wonderful. A new and the baton is passed to a new generation. <laughs> and this is Leela. Yes. You will. You will. If you'd like to hang out with Leela, you'll find her in Union Square Park uh, most afternoons with the Kirtan group. There's an extraordinary thing going on every day now. Is it, is it Monday through Friday or? Every day. Every day. Amazing. So the, the chanting, just as we did that little chant in the beginning, the origins of that chanting process uh, in, shall we say, recent history, meaning about 500 years back, uh, started with Chaitanya, Mahaprabhu. Uh, Mahaprabhu appeared in uh, Mayapur, West Bengal, in 1486, and uh, his appearance in the world was actually foretold by references in the Sanskrit prophetic texts, the revealed texts. Um, uh, Krishna Varnam Tvise Akrishta 
Sangopangastra Parshadam, Yagya Sankirtanai Prayar Yajantihi Sumedasa, the particular Sanskrit text that talks about Krishna's appearance in the Kali Yuga, the age that we're inhabiting, uh, is described Krishna Varnam from the category of the divinity himself, from the Varna of Krishna. Tvise Akrishnam, however, not darkish like Krishna. Krishna's color technically is Shama. It's the dark blue of a rain cloud. Sometimes people say, why is God blue? Well, the, the answer that I heard Prabhupada give was that uh, when, a, when on a hot day like today, if a dark blue rain cloud, which I think is technically called a cumulus, if a cumulus cloud crosses the sky and affords you shade, doesn't that make you feel good and refreshed? So Krishna is like that. He refreshes our life. Well, that's his call. Tvise akrishnam sango pangastra parshadam. Astra means weapon. So sango pangastra, no weapons. You see pictures of Mahaprabhu. His arms are in the air like this. So he's chanting. And when the kirtan party is there in Union Square, you'll see people dancing with their arms up. It's not only a joyous celebration with arms in the air, it also shows no weapons. Other avatars have weapons. Balaram has the plow, Rama has his bow and arrow, Vishnu the chakra, so you have different weapons that are associated with the avatars. Mahaprabhu had no weapons. In fact, the only weapon he had was the holy name. That was his weapon, if you will, in the age of Kali and current state of affairs. The only real qualification that people have for spiritual life is this, two holes in their head. <laughs> they can, we can hear. We can hear. We can't understand very much. We're not very good at scholarship. In the old days, back in the Vedic times, you would study, become a real Sanskrit scholar. You'd have to study these texts very deeply. In fact, um, I should uh, probably mention this now. Starting at the end of August, we're going to be having, we're going to go, go back to a formal 12-part Bhagavad Gita series. They're going to be videotaped for streaming on the Jiva Mukti website. But these sessions that we've had on Tuesday are fantastic. I love the spontaneity of it. I love that there's this interaction that we have. But you're entitled, and our friends in you know, podcast land are entitled to a more formal uh, uh, exposure to the teachings of the Gita. So starting in August, we'll be doing that on Tuesday nights. Right? So you're going to be getting homework. Huh? Starting in August or September? End of August, early September, I suspect. The first one is going to be taped live this Saturday. Well, we're going to have, it'll be all of Bhagavad Gita compressed into 12 sessions. The basic idea is that there should be a course of study where you can at least master the basics. What is Bhagavad Gita? What is its background? What is its purpose? What is the context within, the, within which the Gita occurs? And it is, that context is important. What distinguishes Bhagavad Gita as a wisdom text from other texts? What makes it unique? What are the basic teachings of the Bhagavad Gita? What are the foundational vocabulary and terminology of the Gita? Uh, how do the concepts of the Gita migrate into the language of the life we live? What are these 18 chapters that comprise the Gita? Is there a 
narrative flow to those chapters? And if so, what is that narrative direction? So we'll be doing a little bit more intensive study uh, starting uh, toward the end of the summer. Uh, there's also rumbles of doing another potluck dinner, which you always... <laughs> We have a lot of fun. We, we do uh, bongra dancing. We start off a little bongra dance, bole bole, and then we kind of roll into whatever we, whatever happens. People do some, you know, it's kind of like a little talent show. People come in and do something. And there's always this huge, huge spread of vegan prashadam. So, uh, and we have somewhere between 50 and 80 people who show up usually for these potluck dinners. So we'll, we'll pick a date, right, Cher? Okay, good. Um, any, anything anyone wants to bring to the table before we get into our verse for the evening? Do you finish the verse you were telling us about which I mentioned in the introduction? I'm sorry. You had said a, you, you said a verse from a text about the prophecy of Chaitanya. Oh, about Chaitanya. Did you finish that? No, we can have a, the whole discussion could be about that. And I wouldn't mind, frankly. I mean, I love talking about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Uh, um, Krishna Varnam, so from the category of the Supreme Godhead in this age of Kali, Tvise Akrishna, a color that is not like Krishna's. Now, Krishna is this darkish, technically, the Sanskrit term for Krishna's color is Shama. Premanjana Chirita Bhakti Vilo Chanena Santasa Daivaridayeshu Vilo Kayanti. Yama Shama Sundara Machintya Guna Swarupam Govinda Mari Purusham Tamaham Bajami. This verse from the Brahma Samhita says that those whose eyes, Prem Anjana, Anjana is uh, like uh, mascara. Prema Anjana, if your eyes are anointed with the mascara of love, those whose eyes are anointed with the mascara of love of God. Yama Shama Sundaram Achincha Gunasvarupa. They are seeing Shama Sundar, Krishna, who is this Shama color, uninterrupted constantly, all the time. So if you've awakened your love for God, sometimes people say, Can you show me God? Do you see God? Well, yeah, anybody can see God. But the question is, Do you have the qualification for seeing God? What's the qualification? Premanjana Turita Bhakti Vinojani. Do, are your eyes anointed with the salve of love of God? Then you can see God. So he's Shama. He's this beautiful Shama color. Tvise um, Akrishna. Not that color. So what color is he? What color is the avatar for the age of Kali? Well, we've had other colors in other ages. We've gone through white, blue, darkest We've had a red incarnation. So there's one primary color left, and that's golden. Golden hue. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was also known as Goranga, of a golden complexion. And he was quite effulgent. His, meeting him was quite a startling event. He stood very tall. I don't know exactly how tall. Do, is there any indication? He might have been close to seven feet. He was well over six and a half feet tall. Very, very tall. And his arms were extremely long. They, his hands reached down past his knees. And his eyes were the shape of lotus petals, lotus leaves. And uh, he danced. And he danced. 
And when he danced, it was irresistible. There's a story <laughs> that when he toured South India, he went through the Jarikanda forest. And in the Jarikanda forest, he was dancing and chanting the names of Krishna the whole way. And as he went through the forest, the tigers and the deer and the other forest animals, they all started dancing and chanting with him. It's kind of the peaceable kingdom painting of all of the animals living together. That happened in that moment when Mahaprabhu was chanting. Now here's something interesting. A few years back, I found a painting by Chagall called Paradise. I swear to you, if I brought it in and showed it to you, you'd say, that's Chaitanya Mahaprabhu chanting with the animals in the Jarakanda forest. He's wearing the loincloth of a sannyasi. His arms are up in the air. He's in ecstasy. He has a shaved head. And the deers and the uh, tigers and the animals are all dancing. Now, I went crazy trying to find some information about this painting by Chagall. I could find absolutely nothing. Because I was totally convinced that Chagall must have somehow contacted a story about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to paint this painting. Nothing. I could find nothing about it anywhere. Last July, my wife and I visited Israel. Part of the tour was visiting the Knesset. <laughs> there in the lobby of the Knesset, in tiles on the wall of the lobby, was paradise with Chaitanya dancing and the animals dancing along with it. There, right there in like the, 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 you know, the, the Senate of the Israeli government. So I still don't have any information. I have no idea why he got inspired to do that. There's an interesting little sidebar. So anyway, here we have the story of Chaitanya. And it was Chaitanya who brought the chanting of the Krishna mantra into the public purview. Prior to Chaitanya's time, people chanted Hare Krishna, but primarily the Brahmins, the priests, and others were discouraged from chanting sacred mantras. The idea being that these mantras were the property, the prerogative of those who were of the priest caste. Chaitanya said, no, 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 no. The names of God are everyone's property. We are all by nature part and parcel of God. We are all children of God and we have the privilege of chanting God's names no matter what our particular background is or what our birth is. If you're born in the family of dentists, does that make you a dentist? So why should being born into the family of priests qualify you for anything that someone else can't do? Birth is no criterion for spiritual integrity or progress or position. So he was a a pioneer, if you will, of the movement that brought down the caste system of India. Up until the time of Chaitanya, and then after his disappearance, after he passed away in 1532, that caste system came back into vogue. And there was again this kind of, if you will, exploitation or repression of the so-called lower castes the workers and the people who didn't have those Brahminical privileges. But Chaitanya dismantled the whole caste system by accepting as disciples 
not only women as well as men, but also people who were not born Hindu. He had Muslim disciples. He had people born outside of the Hindu caste system. So that ecumenical uh, movement is considered by certain historians to be the precursor to Gandhi's non-violent, non-cooperation movement in the 1920s, 30s, and early 40s. Uh, same idea. Yeah. Yeah, is it a question? Because we're in a question mode. Yes, yes, yes. All of the great reformers. Yes. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that is the mission of the great spiritual teachers. They all come into the world for the same purpose. Things rise and then they fall. There, there's an upsurge of spiritual awareness and then there's a decline of spiritual awareness. This is described in the fourth uh, chapter of the Bhagavad Gita um, whenever there is a uh, let's, let me read it to you I'm going to read you the verse we should have at least one Sanskrit verse per discussion here if you go if you have a copy of the book and you go to uh, page um One go to page one eighty one if you would, the very beginning of chapter four of the Bhagavad Gita. The personality of Godhead, Lord Sri Krishna said, I instructed this imperishable science of yoga to the sun god Vivaswan, and Vivaswan instructed it to Manu, the father of mankind, and Manu in turn instructed it to Ikshaku. Then text 2 on page 183. This supreme science was thus received through the chain of disciplic succession and the saintly kings understood it in that way. But in course of time the succession was broken and therefore the science as it is appears to be lost. Then text 3. That very ancient science of the relationship with the supreme is today told by me to you because you are my devotee as well as my friend and can therefore understand the transcendental mystery of this science. This is critically important. Spiritual knowledge comes into the world, and the, great, the avatars, the incarnations and great teachers come into the world in order to resuscitate, to revive a sense of spirituality in the culture. And then they go, and that knowledge goes into decline. Why? Why would spiritual consciousness go into decline on the departure of the charismatic pioneer who brings that energy into the society? Why would it disappear? Huh? It's like the game of telephone. It gets watered down as the generation progress. All right, so a distortion of the teachings, that would be one way. What would be another reason? What do you think? What, why do you think? What are your, what's your intuition tells you? Why spirituality would kind of get dissipated and lost in society. I would think that the authenticity of staying intact with the true master. Mm -hmm. 
Sure. When, when that person who is the embodiment of a spiritual life, a divine life, a holy life, is present, you have what is known as the acharya. You have someone who's teaching by example. You could say, aha, that's what it looks like. And follow that example. You have someone whom you can emulate and who by his or her realization can answer even very complex questions about spiritual life. You have an ultimate arbiter of spiritual knowledge here. And when that person leaves... We have proof. Hmm? Yes, you point and say, here's the proof. Right. And you're sure. in front of God. You go, oh, okay, so God's real. Yeah. Now, when that's no longer personally present, then things can go into decline. What's another reason for spiritual energy in the world going into decline? Any thoughts? I'm not looking at you. Right. <laughs> It doesn't fit logically for me, it also seems that things has to go back for us to appreciate good. Ooh, wow, okay. That's a tricky one, you're right. The idea that without the absence of that knowledge, how will we come to appreciate that we have it? Is that kind of, or that we know we're missing it? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's some real grounding to what you're saying, but it's a very, very deep level. Very, very deep level of understanding. And it applies primarily to those who have already achieved a certain degree of spiritual awareness. That uh, in the absence of that lover of God, the teacher, uh, you feel what's known as vipralamba. It's a, it's a yearning of the heart in separation. Uh, and it is an impetus to increasing that love but that's a that's for a very 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 select rare group of spiritually advanced souls but you're right there's some truth to that idea of you don't really appreciate you, you don't really know what you've got till it's gone right i think that was a Joni mitchell song but, um yeah what about like what about Yeah, we have become too distanced from our own spiritual roots because we're no longer connected to the earth the way we once were. Uh, there's such great truth in that. Anybody else doing any gardening right now? This is the time of year to really be getting your hands dirty. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've, I've, been out in the, I've been out in the garden, and I, I, I don't know why it took me so long to discover this. It's the most extraordinary experience. It's really the most amazing thing. Nature is there 
waiting to reciprocate with us. The world is out there just waiting to describe what's there a little bit later in the fourth chapter of the Gita where Krishna described in the third chapter, sorry, third chapter. He says, in the beginning of time, at the dawn of creation, the Lord of all beings, the supreme divinity, sent forth generation of humans and animals along with yajna, sacred acts of service, saying, do this and be happy. Honor the relationship that you have together and everything desirable will be bestowed upon you. In a very, very small way, just by planting a vegetable garden or a flower garden, you see it happen. You turn the earth, you feed the earth with some nutrients, some manure or topsoil, whatever it may be, some compost. You plant a seed. You water it, you weed it, you take care of it. And the earth gives you back food that you can eat and share with your family and friends. It's the most, it sounds almost too simple to be miraculous, but it is the most amazing experience I think I've had in a very, very long time. It's just watching how this works. A seed goes in the ground. And all of a sudden, I've got more tomatoes than I know what to do with. It's as if God is saying, Krishna is saying, just take one step toward me, and I'll take a thousand steps toward you. Do a little bit. Come closer to me, even if it's just a little bit. I think this is Sharon's point. If we just tried a little bit, the feedback, the response would be so gratifying that you'd ask yourself why you ever lived any other way. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing just to watch life reciprocating. It's really amazing. So it brings us back almost every time we have these discussions to the very first lesson of the Bhagavad Gita, which is that you're not the body, you're the soul within the body. You're the consciousness within the body. That cannot be avoided. That one issue is at the heart of everything. Look, we were talking about careers and jobs. We were talking about relationships. We've been talking about, you know, fulfillment of life. We, you know, we go through all kinds of interesting topics here. You can't resolve any of those things without addressing the issue of consciousness. You can't solve a problem with any degree of permanence in this world if you avoid asking the question, who are we dealing with? Bhagavad Gita is a personalist text. What does that mean? It means that ultimately the vision of the Gita is that we are people. We're not just spiritual energy. Yes, we are spiritual energy. But as significant, if not more significant, you, the spiritual energy that is animating this body, you're a person. You're a person. You have your own unique individuality that is permanent, it is indestructible, it is who you are, and nobody can take it away from you. And what is it? Who is that person? 
That person is a spiritual, eternal, divine, blissful, beautiful soul. Complete, lacking nothing. You're fine. You're doing just fine because you are the eternal soul within this body. With that spiritual self-confidence, that if you will, healthy ego, there's kind of unhealthy ego and then there's healthy. If you know yourself as a spiritual being, that's healthy ego. Starting from that point, now you can start addressing questions. Now you can decide what job is the right job for me. Until you've got that idea in your head that I need, I, who I am is the eternal being within this body, how can you decide what's the right job to pursue? How can you decide what relationship to pursue? How will you know how to interact with another human being if you don't know who you are? So every day you've got to cultivate this. Don't avoid this. Every single day. Do something to cultivate your awareness of yourself as an eternal spiritual being. You know, don't wait for Tuesday. Take the Bhagavad Gita home. Take it home. For free. And in the morning, just open. You know, sometimes it's almost like, I guess I can tell you. If I've got something on my mind or something troubling me, I'll do this. And I'll kind of go, boop. Reminds me of a joke. Can I tell you a joke? The people who know me, those of you who are new here, they know that I have this condition. It's called joke-itis or something. I don't know. I have to tell a joke. These two guys come over from the old country. They're in America. They promise each other they're going to, you know, lift themselves up from poverty. They're going to do a really good job. And uh, so... They don't. They separate. They haven't seen each other in a number of years, and and uh, you know one one guy sees his friend uh, driving up in, in a in a car and says, "Wow, you're doing really well." He says, "Yeah, I'm doing fantastic." Uh, what's your secret? He says, "Well, I take my Bible, my Torah, and uh, I I don't know what to do, so I'll just." open it, I'll just open it, and, and wherever my finger lands, I do what Hashem tells me to do on that page. And I've become the successful person you see before you now. So his friend says, geez, i got to try that. So another year or two go, go by, <laughs> and the guy who showed up in the limousine is waiting at a red light, and his friend shows up in an even bigger limousine. And he says, is that you? He says, yeah, it's me. He says, my gosh, look at you. What happened? He said, I did what you told me. What do you mean you did what you told me? I, I took the Torah, and I was in distress. I, I had no money. I didn't know what to do. My company was failing. So I flipped through the pages, and I put my finger there, and I did what it told me. Really, what did it tell you? It said chapter 11. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway. <laughs> If you can live through those jokes, you'll make it fine here on Tuesdays. Anyway, sometimes I'll confess to you in private that I'll do that. If something's on my mind, I'll just flip through and I'll reach, you know, like here. What is this verse? This is chapter 17, verse 21. It says, Charity performed with the expectation of some return or with a desire for fruit of result or in a grudging mood is said to be charity in the mode of passion. What's the meaning there? The meaning is 
if you're going to do good, don't do it because you're going to get something back from it. Good should be done because good needs to be done in the world. You don't do good because you're leveling expectations. On the, you remember when Sonia Sumar was here? Two weeks ago, she would come. We had a special guest. I mean special with a capital special. <laughs> Shiva Kami is her initiated name. She's a disciple of Swami Satchidananda and she's a yoga for special needs children therapist. And she was talking about how she works with children who have autism, multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, uh, you know, whatever their particular condition may be. And she was saying, I think so, so. How, what do you do? You know, what is it? You know, what's your method? She said, I don't have a method. <laughs> There's no method. I try to get people to not have method. Don't have expectations. Put all of your expectations aside and just be there with that child and love that child. That's pretty amazing stuff. It's also very, you know, non-American medical association. You know, it's very non-AMA. <laughs> you know? Because it doesn't rely on standard tools of analysis. It relies on what's happening right here, in your heart and in your gut. Yeah? Well, from a practical standpoint, when I need to do a motivational lecture in the morning, or I need to do like a small teaching group, instead of me having to make up some sort of I mean, it does work. I'm not recommending that you just, you know, kind of like flip through the Gita. It should be studied chapter by chapter. I mean, there's the standard method of study of these sacred texts as you start at the beginning and you go through. But the point being that it's so wonderful that wherever you are, you can find something for you. Yes, Jaydeep. Excuse me? Mahatma Gandhi used to also open anywhere in the Gita. Depth of despair. I'll read a verse from Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, your turn. Enough for me. What do you think? <laughs> I'm going to be patient. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to wait. I'm interested in knowing how this sits with you, what thoughts come to mind. Yeah. Say your name again. Alice. Alice, A-L-I-C-E. Alice? Well, first you have to know yourself. Yes. If you understand yourself to be the soul dwelling within this material vehicle, then you be begin to have some practical understanding of what life might be like for someone else, also struggling with that incompatible situation. 
you know, the hum what is the human condition? You know, Rousseau talked about you know, the human condition. What is the human condition? The human condition is that we're eternal beings in temporary bodies. We're fish out of water. So if you know yourself, first of all, but, all right, what is this experience like for me? Well, first of all, it's very frustrating because the senses in my mind are pushing me in certain directions, and I don't really ever seem to be getting where they're wanting me to go. So there's what I'm learning about myself spiritually, and then I'm contending with all of these outside forces and influences. Gee, that other person must also be experiencing some of that same kind of frustration. So first examining your own life, and by, there's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita that says, they are the true yogis who, by dint of comparison with their own selves, see the true equality of all beings, both in happiness and distress. So it's by studying your own situation first, that you can come to have compassion for others. If you would like someone to be sympathetic to the stuff that you've got to go through, don't you think that others would also feel the same way? Aren't they also hoping that someone will reach out and appreciate them? Somebody came over to the house last week, and uh, beautiful, beautiful guy. I mean, beautiful human being. And... Uh, I've known him for a while, but I haven't known him all that well. So I said, look, we're just here for lunch, but do you mind, can you tell me, tell me about yourself? I mean, where did you grow up, and, and what did your parents do when you were growing up, and you know, what's, your, what's your life like? You know, what brought you to become the person who opened the Ethical Culture Society chapter on Long Island? I mean, how did you get to be that thoughtful, sensitive person I know? So he told me he grew up in you know, East New York and it was you know, a real kind of rough and tumble kind of life in those days. And, you know, and he was the first one to get a college. I mean, he told me about himself. And then before he left, he said to me, he said, you know, I don't know what it is, but I've, for, for a long time now, I've been terribly sad because um, I'd meet people, colleagues from the university where we teach. Everybody seems so self-absorbed. And I haven't been able to make any friends with any of them. You're the first person, and I don't know how long, who, you started off our whole time here by asking me to tell you about myself. And I, I can't tell you how wonderful that was for me. People want to be acknowledged. People are very isolated. This is a terribly lonely place, this world, especially Midtown. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, sure. How do you know how to relate to somebody until you've understood them? And how do you understand them if you don't acknowledge that, like yourself, as the Bhagavad Gita says, they are eternal souls struggling inside these very limited temporary bodies. It takes us usually about five minutes in these little discussions to kind of like, you know, from the universe of possibilities, it goes, wham, right down to relationships. <laughs> it's like, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> Relationship. 
But it's natural. You know, it's, relationships are what makes life worth living. You know? So you got to start with the important stuff. Yeah. that we could ever make spiritual progress if all that we do is acknowledge people on the level of their bodies. How on earth could we imagine making any spiritual progress if you look at an animal and only think of that living being in terms of the body? It's not logical. It's not logical. Can't, can't do it. But it takes practice. It takes practice to live like that. And that's very hard. That's why every day, that's why spiritual life is a daily discipline. It's called sadhana. Daily discipline. Daily discipline. Chanting, you know, grab your beads. If you, if you don't have them, I got them. You know? You grab your, grab your japa beads here. You know? They're all tangled up, which, you know, that always happens. Grab a set of beads, start from the bead next to this mountain or Krishna bead here. First and third fingers, not this one, that's your utility finger. You know? Anyway, let's chant. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And move to the next bead. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna. You do that for a few minutes in the morning. Try it for one week and just see what happens. Just an experiment. Just, I'm not promising you anything. Not insisting. Just try it. It's pretty amazing. Thank you. Lovely question. Anything else want to add? So you grew up in South Africa? Yes. And were you there during the apartheid time?
stark way how identifying people with the color of their bodies divided a culture. Absolutely. Wow. Crazy. Crazy. I'm writing a, a biography right now of someone who describes that when he came over from Europe he went down to the south and he saw this was in the 50s and he saw um, uh, water fountains. One said white and one said black. And he kept waiting for someone to use the water fountain that would have black water coming out of it. And then when someone explained to him, no, no, that's... Because those people are not allowed to... He couldn't understand that. Now, this is all within our lifetime. You know, this, it wasn't that long ago. It was when I was you know, a teenager, there were restaurants in the South where a black person could not sit at the same table as a, as a white person. So this is, you know, we're, we're living in a world where antipathy, hatred, violence occur. Why? Physical differences, material differences, sometimes philosophical differences. But if you dig down to that philosophical difference, what you'll find is divisions, dividing people into different camps based on the body. The history of the body, ethnically, culturally, racially, whatever it may be. So it's a real radical peace formula. Don't think in terms of body. Think in, think in terms of the soul within the body. And what can be done there? It's revolutionary. Which is where someone like Mandela comes from. It comes from that same space of Acknowledge the divinity of life. Why forgive if whites are not as divine in their essence as blacks? And vice versa. It's it's not uh, it's. Uh, it's not about America. Sorry. No, the that's people what. Whites and blacks in South Africa. Right. It's fifty million black people versus four, five million. That's a large number. Yeah. They yeah. could have just wiped out the entire white nation. Yeah. And not in America, but they've done that. So it was a very peaceful time. Yeah. Yeah. You've seen some amazing things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure each of us here, if we were to think about it, you could remember an experience from your own life where harm was done because of some misidentification of someone with the body. 
the obvious comes to mind, you know, rape and abuse of women, distinguishing a woman's, a soul in a woman's body from a soul in a man's body. The harm that we cause ourselves, through ourselves, mm. the misidentification of our own pain that we cause ourselves in today, because we're identifying ourselves with this body, mm-hmm. and we kind of compare it with what is considered Every day. Yeah. Walking down the street, with all the billboards and signage, just the added layers of Maya or turning on the television and seeing what we're supposed to be, and then trying to measure up to that. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, Satyaraj, is uh, has teamed up with someone who leads uh, 12-step programs to write a book um, approaching a 12-step program from a bhakti perspective. The addictions do not happen on the level of the core self. The addictions are body and mind biochemically based. So starting from the perspective of who is the core self who has these conditions. So then you can begin to walk, walk, walk through those conditions. Are you that addiction? No, I have an addiction. I am not the addiction. Begin to separate yourself from the experience. Any amazing stuff. So, uh, a couple of announcements. Uh, Starting end of uh, August, we're going to be taping... Uh, the Tuesday classes for about three months. Uh, Jiva Mukti is putting a Bhagavad Gita series online and so there'll be a more formal series of classes starting, I suspect, end of August uh, where for 12 sessions we'll be uh, studying the Gita more systematically. Now the Tuesdays that we've been having for seven years now or whatever for the most part, have been kind of like this, a little open-ended. People talk about whatever they want to want to talk about. Uh, these will be more structured. You know, there'll be vocabulary. We'll have some quizzes. You'll have some homework reading. And at the end, if you go through the entire twelve sessions, there'll be a certificate of completion issued by Jiva Mukti. That and a swipe card will get you on the subway. But <laughs> uh, it, it'll be important if you're teaching and you would like to introduce your students to Bhagavad Gita, it'll give you a grounding. So that'll be coming up in the month, uh, end of August. Yes. Will that still be the same time on Tuesday? Tuesday, same time, same place. Uh, I think for people who are going to be attending as we've been doing now, I would vote in terms of continuing to have it on a volunteer donation basis. I'm going to have to work with the powers that be about that. They have different ideas sometimes. But if people are signing up online, there will be a fee for Because you'll be sending your exams and papers in and they'll be graded. So that's, that's something else. Who's doing Arctic this evening? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We don't force anyone. Uh, Cher, would you like to do the RT? Okay. 
Um, for those of you who are new to our gatherings, we started with kirtan, and we end with kirtan in a ceremony called arati. Now, the Sanskrit word arati simply means an offering. Arati takes the Mahabhuta, or the five elements of creation, and offers them back to the Creator. So you will see on the tray incense, the fragrance of the earth. You'll see water in the conch shell. You'll see uh, the flame of the candle. You'll see air moved by the chamara whisk. So the elements of the earth are being offered back to Krishna in his form of Radha and Krishna, the beauty of the bhakti tradition is that it acknowledges God in both male and female form. It's one of the reasons why I signed up. Um, this idea that divinity has a male and female component, uh, that there's a loving relationship that is not uh, uniquely heterosexual. We'll get into that some other time. Uh, it is uh, inclusive of all living beings just appealed to me so much more than uh, a, a unidimensional male divinity and that was kind of your only option so you, you see them embodied here you see Radha and Krishna in the painting if you walk around Jiva Mukti you'll see a lot of posters of, of Radha and Krishna Rodney Quite true. Yeah. It is energizing. That is quite true. Thank you. Sure. I mean, I, I'm not expecting thousands of people signing up. So. Anyone can just simply send me an Don't email. Don't say that. We will have thousands. <laughs> okay, I was wrong. We will have. We're gonna have thousands, thousands of people. Of people. Send. But if you were to send me an email, I would send you whatever the session is that you missed. Yeah. You're going away, obviously. <laughs> just, just for ten days. But right. I'll miss that too. Okay. Speaking of being away, uh, I'm going to be visiting my son later this month. So we'll figure out what to do. But it's July. 23rd, I think, I'll be gone. So either, yeah. <laughs> either we'll find someone to, maybe you'd like to take the class on yeah, the 23rd. Atma. Atma, would you do that? I want you to meet my dear friend Atma. Uh, so maybe on Tuesday, if you're available, I don't want to be presumptuous about this. Thank you. All right, so t uh, Tuesday, July 23rd? Wonderful. We'll send an announcement out. Okay. Great. Okay, so uh, the RJ ceremony. Yes. Yeah. Oh, now we're still setting up? Okay. Starts off with sound also. Sound is an element of creation. So the beginning of the RT is the blowing of a conch shell. The sound of the conch, by the way, uh, is considered the closest to ohm that you can create with an instrument. That boom of the conch 
is the Om Kara Mantra, that Bij Mantra that was created by the French. And uh, you want to leave the kirtan? Yeah. All right, I will. But a simple melody for our family. Simple melody. Simple melody for our family.